invited to come and join us on that assembly. Turn your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, this morning we're going to focus our attention on the text of our theme for this month um, and uh, spend some time looking at uh, what we announced earlier, uh, men and women professing godliness and what Paul uh, says to the young evangelist Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, just a hint of uh, maybe to get you to come back next week. The Lord willing, Brother Steve Niemeyer is going to speak for us uh, next Sunday morning. Uh, and I appreciate Steve being willing to do that. And I know you do as well uh, to present a lesson for us. So we'll look forward to that. Paul's writing in, uh, to the young evangelist Timothy things concerning uh, the operation of the church, if we could phrase it that way. He's making known to Timothy things that he is to present to the church at Ephesus, to the Christians that are there, to help them grow closer to one another and to worship God in a way that's right. Uh, In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, if you want to read a couple of verses with me, Paul says, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. But which is proper for women professing godliness with good works? Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, I read all those verses with the understanding that we're not going to study or discuss all of those words today. That sets the stage for what the Lord willing we're going to look at uh, in some of the lessons in the rest of the month. Uh, There's more there, I think, that certainly we could adequately uh, cover uh, even in the month that's ahead. But I wanted to take a couple minutes this morning and take take a closer look at chapter 2 and verse 8. Paul says, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath, and doubting. Now, have you ever read that verse with the aspect of looking at it as a command to you, uh, and how uh, comprehensive that command ought to be, or how we'd understand what Paul tells Timothy here—that he desires that men would pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. What does that mean? As, al- as always, I think we begin to look at a passage and try to make application to ourselves. That maybe the first step is to take a to take a notice of the context. And by context, we mean the surrounding verses, or not just the immediate verses, but even the context of the whole book and what's addressed in the letter itself. And that way we can come to an understanding of what this particular text uh, points to. Paul has been encouraging, if we look at the text, we recognize that Paul has been encouraging prayer in a very general way. If you go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, Therefore I exhort... First of all, that supplication and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Now what I want us to notice here, not only that Paul is, is addressing the aspect of prayer, and then verse 8, there is a specific commandment to pray, but, but the, the idea here that Paul's exhortation to pray has to do with a command that focuses on the use of the term men. Uh, Paul here uses the word men, or the singular aspect of that man of man, four times in this passage. Now the original word in the Greek, and I'm going to say something here about Greek language 
not because I'm a Greek scholar, but because it helps set the context if we know the, 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 some of the connotations to the words that are used that are translated into the English. Because what we may not see in the English may become more apparent to us if we know what the actual meaning of the original word was. Paul uses the word man four times in these verses, and the original word in this particular text is the word anthropos, which means a human being, someone you see who is of the human species without respect of gender. So we use the word man in that way too in the English language, don't we? We talk about a man and if you or men, and if you go to and there are two doors there, and one says men and one says women, you sort of know, at least you're supposed to know, which one you go into by what you are. You're either a man or you're a woman. But we also talk about man in the general sense, about man on earth and what God does, what God's relationship is to man. And by that, we don't just mean males, we mean everybody, the human species. And the original terminology had that connotation to it. The word anthropos meant man in general, human beings irrespective of gender. So what's he saying? In verse 1, he's telling us to pray for everyone, not just males. And God would desire that everyone would be saved. You see in verse 4, both male and female. Jesus is the mediator of every person, both male and female, in verse 5. And that the word depicts humanity as he uses it here, so it makes sense then that he would apply it to Jesus and say Jesus is a man, he is a human being. Now he's also a male, but the aspect of that word is that Jesus was in human flesh. He is the mediator between man and God, the man, Jesus Christ. But I want us to notice that in verse 8, Paul uses a different word in the very next text. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere. And the word here is the word anar, which means a male person as opposed to a female person. So this is the word in the original language that distinguishes between a man and a woman. And so Paul is specifying gender here when he says that I desire for that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. And what's the significance of that? Well, I believe that because Paul is specifying gender here, that he's making not only a distinction that's apparent, not so apparent in the English, that is certainly apparent in the Greek, but he's implying this aspect of the context itself. If I can get ahead of myself here. Uh, that he's implying the context of the command to have to do with the public worship uh, of the Lord's church. He's identifying men here because men are placed in the leadership role within the church as it assembles. And so he's talking about men leading prayer or men being involved in lifting up hands within the assembly. Now, the reason I would come to that conclusion is not just because of the particular use of the Greek, uh, of the Greek words, but the aspect of the distinction between men and women and the roles of men and women in the assembly is where he goes later on in verses 11 through 15 in limiting the public teaching the assembly to men and not to women. It harmonizes what Paul tells elsewhere in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 and 35 that there were different roles within the aspect of the public uh, teaching of the word of God and the women were to keep silent in the churches the men then were to teach. I believe that those particular roles are, are still in place and God hasn't changed the rules on that. Our society moves in certain directions and certainly is moved away from any acceptance of the aspect of uh, different roles of men and women in the ministry of the church or even the public assembly of the church. But God doesn't change his word on that and the Lord willing we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we discuss the passage we read earlier in 1 Timothy 2 here and talk about the roles of men and women in the public assembly. But I I want us to notice that because I believe that's the context here of this particular passage when he says men are to lift up holy hands uh, and they uh, they are to pray in that regard. Now what he says in this context is they are to pray everywhere. 
And again, this is significant in that it proves sort of false the very general popular notion among both the Jews and the Gentiles that praying had a certain efficacy was made in certain particular plagues. The prayers offered in certain places like the temple or the place where idols were worshipped were more effective. They were more receptive to God because of where they were offered. And the use of the word, the term everywhere would point, certainly Christians of the first century, that it really, didn't, it really doesn't matter physically where you offer a prayer. Jesus taught that notion as well in John chapter 4 in the aspect of the, worship, of the place of worship. There's not a particular physical location uh, that makes worship acceptable or validates it. Uh, it, it, in that context, Jesus does an interesting thing. The Samaritan woman is, is it Gerizim or is it Jerusalem? Talking about choose a place. And the place that Jesus chooses, so to speak, is in spirit and truth. That the true worshipers God worship in spirit and truth. Now that's a place. It's a spiritual place. But that's, I think, the aspect of that particular, uh, particular passage. But this, again, points to this aspect of public worship uh, that's offered to men... Uh, that's offered to God, men are then to pray. But some of the focus of the passage I want us to put our attention on is the particular uh, requirement here or, or command that the men are to lift up their hands, holy hands, and pray to God. Is God commanding that we physically lift our hands when we pray? Now you see that some. Maybe you see that a lot if you go to different places or you look around uh, in religious circles that individuals will see will be lifting their hands. And so the lifting, the idea of lifting hands in prayer was common. It's not only common in religious circles today in different places, but it was also common in the time of the apostles and even before. And that's the first thing that I want us to notice because we don't do it much, do we? And we don't practice it much. But that's not because it wasn't done before. And the idea of whether or not that God is specifically commanding us to lift our hands when we pray, or specifically men as they would lead prayer in a public assembly, or to lift their hands, I think is a legitimate question from the text. It's something we need to understand about this text, and not just pass over it. May make a note before we, before we go into the aspect of how I, what the, I believe this passage teaches. I think we need to sometimes be careful. And, and I say that in the context of sometimes we find ourselves... Uh, disposing easily of something the Bible speaks about. That individuals practice something and they have a passage they can bring and show where people of the first century practiced it or it was done before or maybe even in their understanding of the passage it was commanded by God and because we don't do it we pass over it. We may just not just ignore it or we may give a rationalization immediately without looking at the text or the passage itself because of our desire to sometimes protect uh, what we do or to validate our own practices. And I think that's a dangerous element. I'm not saying that we always do that. And I'm not saying necessarily we do that even in the context of this particular passage. But when we find ourselves that the first response to an individual that brings a Bible passage to us is to defend what we do rather than look at the passage, we need to take notice of that. Amen. Because the, the, what we really need to do is look at the passage. And then if it defends us, it defends us. If it doesn't, then that's a whole different ballgame and we certainly need to pay attention to that. Lifting hands in prayer is not something that's inherently wrong because other people do it. And it's not right because other people do it as well. We look at the passage itself and say, what is Paul actually expressing here? Is this a command? Well, as we mentioned before, it's done. it, it was done very much uh, in pages of the New Testament. In the great revival meeting of Nehemiah and Ezra, in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 6, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now you get the picture there? There's some physical positions here that are presented in the text. 
In the 141st Psalm, verse 2, let my prayer be set before you as an incense, the lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice. In the book of Lamentations, in verse 3 and verse 41, Jeremiah says, let us lift our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. And then, that again, another signal event in the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, and Solomon's officiating over the building of the temple. He says, And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. And then that prayer continues. So it's not difficult for us to recognize that the lifting of hands to heaven, the lifting of hands when an individual would pray, was a common position, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, at least as we look at the text of the Bible, we see it several times. What I would recognize from that is that both among the Jews and then later on, even in the pages of the New Testament, this was a common practice or custom. And that its inclusion into the text of the Scriptures without God saying, don't do this, and the aspect that individuals who were doing the praying were acceptable for God, would present to me the aspect that this is an activity that would be commended by God. Even today, when we think about prayer in terms of the custom of it, what would bring to our mind the idea of praying, if I put my both my hands together like this and I put them all this, what do you think about? I'm praying. It signifies this aspect of making a petition to God that people would raise their hands, sometimes raise their hands together. It's symbolic of praying. Now, that recognizing, recognizing that that's true, we have to also recognize that the Bible does not specify a bodily position for praying in any of its teachings. Whether this passage or any other passage, people in the Bible are described as praying while standing up, while sitting down, while kneeling, while looking upward, while looking down, bowing their heads, by laying flat on the ground. They prayed while pounding their chest in certain instances. So there is a lot of different physical positions that are portrayed to us, what people do with their physical body as they pray before God, and none of those positions are presented in the Bible as this is the required position when someone prays is not even indicative in the Scriptures that a particular body position made a prayer more efficacious before God because people prayed in all different circumstances. So one, no one physical position makes my prayers more readily heard by God. Remember the story of the three ministers who were arguing over this one time and one minister said he felt that the key uh, to praying was lifting up hands toward heaven as you prayed. And the, the, uh, Another minister disagreed with that. He said that real prayer is, is take place when you get on your knees and you pray. And the third minister, again objecting to the first two, said the only position in which to pray is to lie flat on the floor with your face to the ground. In the back of the room, you see there was this uh, a telephone repairman who was listening to the whole discussion in the background. He couldn't take any longer. He said, he finally, he said, for me, the most powerful prayer I ever prayed was while I was dangling upside down by my heels from a power pole 40 feet above the ground. <laughs> so where you're at physically may not necessarily attribute to the aspect of the power of your prayer or the sincerity of your words. So does it matter how we pray? Well, certainly the aspect of lifting up hands here is significant to the text. Paul's mentioning it for some reason, and I believe that the reason is because this was a very common way to pray. And so he's reflecting on the way that individuals, what individuals do physically as they prayed, but he's adding to this, or connecting to this, a deeper and more important principle than just the physical position of the body. And that is they are to lift up holy hands. But the real significance of the passage here, what's really being taught is not to require one particular physical position over another, 
but rather to point to an attitude or a spiritual condition that does connect itself with the efficacy and the power of prayer. You know, four times in the scriptures, the apostles tell us that we need to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, four times. That ought to, that, that ought to, we have to take mention of that, that we, that, we ought to, that we ought to pay attention that God's telling us we ought to greet one another with a holy kiss. None of you people kissed me when I came in this morning. <laughs> I'm not saying I regret that. <laughs> but the idea of greeting is involved in this. What is the passage doing? Is it telling us that this is the way we have to greet one another? To say that we greet one another with a holy kiss? What's the import of that? Well, certainly Paul's using a custom... He's referencing a custom that was, that was the way that individuals greeted in the time in which he was speaking and that they kissed one another. But he's using that not to make a point about requiring a particular type of greeting, but to show that if you're going to greet one another, you need to greet one another in a holy way, in a sanctified way, in a way of purity. To dismiss the aspect of a kiss in any sexual tones or any immoral tones and make sure that you greet one another in a way that, per, that presents itself uh, of the spiritual relationships you have one for another. And I believe that's what Paul's doing here. Rather than commanding a certain physical requirement for prayer, that he's referencing a common manner of physically praying before God to command a critical prerequisite to leading others in prayer. And that is that these men that would pray need to lift up holy hands. The word for holy here is the word hazios, which means to be right or unpolluted, unstained. What's interesting about this particular word is that uh, the most common familiar word for holy is the word hagios, and this is a different word than that in the original language. The word hagios, from which we get the word saint or sanctified and holy so many times is translated, from, uh, is translated out of the Hebrew language in the Old Testament, means that which is separated or sanctified for God's use, and we're more familiar with that particular terminology. This particular word is linked to that, or at least it's, it's, it, it certainly it has the s- similar connotations. But it signifies more specifically what is religiously right as opposed to what is polluted or stained or unrighteous. In fact, this word is used several times in the Scriptures in the same verse connected with the aspect of righteousness. What is righteous and holy. The idea that there is a standard by which individuals are to follow and when they follow that standard then they are hasios, they are holy. Vine says the word means one who is careful of all the duties toward God. Now what's that make you think of? When you think about the idea of holy in connection with Paul's statement here. What we recognize is that it fits pretty well that Paul's use of this term you hear in talking about hands makes sense. That hands are symbolic of what we do. We, talk, we use hands that way not only in our English language but even in the scriptures themselves. It talks about the hands of God, the mighty hand of God. Well, God doesn't have a physical hand. What's it mean? His hand symbolizes what he does, his activities. And so it does for us. He's not talking about whether or not you washed your hands physically. He's saying here that you need to have unpolluted hands. Your activities of your life need to be unstained by immorality or sin. Yet the person who has holy hands is a person who obeys the commandments of God. That he does the thing God wants him to do and he stays away from evil. Those hands that have not been used to do evil. So what's the passage teaching us? It's commanding concerning the one who prays, not in the context of a physical act, but rather of a spiritual characteristic. The one who is going to pray before God and ultimately in the context, I believe, lead others in prayer needs to recognize that what he's doing is an act of holiness based upon the condition of holiness within his own life. Now again, that makes sense. Praying is an act of submission. 
Not my will, but your will be done. Isn't that the mantra of praying before God that Jesus presents to us? That we're asking and pleading to God, submitting to Him that He would provide for us, that He would give to us. We're calling upon Him. And so what should a person's life be like that would put themselves in the position of praying before God? They must be lives of submission. Lives that have referenced the aspect of submission in their own life. Therefore, they are holy. They've paid careful attention to the duties that God has given them to do and they've submitted to those duties. What Paul's teaching against is important here for us to understand. Of individuals standing up in any physical position and in a hypocritical way calling upon God in prayer while their own lives are full of immorality or rebelliousness. That a heart that's not submitted to God has no promise of the answer of prayer. Connect this in, with Peter's statement in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Here Paul, Peter is dealing with, again, the aspect of family relationships, the husbands and wives and the different gender roles that will be there. In verse 7 he says, Husbands likewise dwell with them, dwell with them according to understanding. You dwell with your wife according to understanding. Giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. So since we read that, we wonder, it startles us that Paul would mention prayer in that context. He's talking about what, uh, the difference between men and women and man being cognizant of the, uh, of the vulnerable position his wife is in and being in subjection and she's weaker, so he needs to protect her and honor her. But then he puts at the end of this that you need to be careful about this lest your prayers be hindered. What he's saying here, I believe, in this context is that if you're not willing to submit to the needs of your wife, and your heart is not submissive in the commandment in, 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 in terms of understanding her needs, then you have no promise that God will listen to your prayers. That if you fail to submit yourself, then you cannot expect God to submit to your wishes. That your prayers will be hindered. His hands must be holy if he's going to pray. And if he's not treating his wife right, his hands are not holy, you see, in terms of what's being said. So Peter goes on in this passage to call for compassion, love for others. He talks about tenderheartedness and courtesy in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3. Now he wants them to develop these qualities. Why does he want them to develop these qualities? What is his motivation for them to develop these spiritual fruits? He uses words right out of the 34th Psalm in verse 12. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he goes back and grabs a hold of an Old Testament passage in the Psalms and brings the principle forward and says, this is the reason why you need to be courteous and compassionate and tenderhearted towards others. Why you need to learn to get along with one another. Because you're going to need God and you do need God. And if you're going to pray before God, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Your hands must be holy if you're going to lift them up to God. In the first chapter of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah rebukes Judah for their idolatry and wickedness and what is almost... Uh, a um, sarcastic type of approach to the aspect of their immorality. He calls them in verse 9, he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah and says that God's unwilling to accept your sacrifice and your offering. Don't bring them anymore. They're just hypocrisy. But notice what he tells them in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 15. He says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourself clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. You're getting pretty particular there, isn't he? 
Israel wants to bring their sacrifice and all the pomp and circumstance of the temple and offer their land before God and go through all the rituals that they recognize that so make up their religion before God. And Isaiah the prophet saying, ah, don't bother. Why? Because God's not going to hear you. Your hands are not holy. They're full of blood. The everyday life that you live does not reflect a submissive heart. You need to seek justice and rebuke the oppressor and stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. Or God's not going to listen to you. Now, is there a lesson for us in that? Well, a lot of religion today is just exactly that way. It is an outward expression of a hypocritical appeal to God that has no implications in a person's everyday life. The people go out and cheat one another and lie to one another and live any way they want to and disrupt marriages and sexual immorality and then they come into a building and believe that God's going to listen to their prayers and they lift up their hands. And Paul says, no. Those hands must be holy to lift them up before God. We live in a world that's a big mess. And we think about the efficacy of prayer in our own lives. We desire for God to do something about the world around us. Can anything be done about, about all that's going on in our nation? And we want God to change hearts. We want God to save our families. We want God, you see, to restore our country from ruin. And we pray about that. And we call on others to pray about that. And even the irreligious among us sometimes call for prayers in our public assemblies. And when we talk about the aspect of the expectation of whether or not God will hear us, do we ever get around to thinking about some of that responsibility falls upon us in our daily lives? That if we seek God's help, the promise of that help comes only in connection with whether or not our hands are holy. We need to be godly people whose hands are pure and righteous before God who every day seek to turn away from sin in our own lives so that when we lift our hands before God, he will recognize our holiness and listen. I like the wording of the Holman Christian Standard Bible translation of James 5 verse 16. It says, The intense prayer of the righteous is powerful. The intense prayer of the righteous is powerful. Which would imply that the intense prayer of the unrighteous doesn't have much going for it. And that's what Paul's suggesting here. Not suggesting, but commanding. The men put in position of leadership would lift up hands to God and pray to God for things to be different spiritually within the church, within their own families, within their nation, that those hands need to reflect a holiness in their own lives. That what's at stake, you see, and what's certainly at the point, is the aspect of our own personal responsibility towards God. But then he goes on to say, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. The word translated as wrath here is the common word orge in the original language, which is defined as anger. Sometimes it means violent passion. It's translated as indignation and vengeance and many times anger or wrath. And there, so there's distinctions sometimes to be made between the aspect of anger and wrath in the original language. Not necessarily, I think, uh, implicit in this particular passage. But it connects with that the word doubting. As the New King James, I think, uses the word doubting. It's a word that's translated as disputing in the New International Version, and ESV says quarreling, so it gives us the connotation here of contentiousness and debating. People are not getting along, disputing with one another. Now some suggest, and Linsky's one of these, who says that the word in the original language has a more general, broader meaning, and it really refers to, to uh, bad thinking or wrong thinking in general. The idea of doubting here is not necessarily having doubts, or not necessarily just arguing, it's the idea that your thoughts are all amiss. Not thinking in the right way or spiritual way. 
Now I don't know which is best to see from the original language. Like I said, I'm not a scholar about this. But I believe there's something to be said when we look at something to be seen when we look at the aspect here of how Paul connects these two things together. That wrong thinking in general contaminates our prayers and disqualifies our petitions, that we think about what makes prayer effective. And what we do that makes prayer effective is not in the physical position or the physical place that we offer the prayer, but it has to do whether or not we're living our lives right whether or not we are holy hands, and whether or not our minds are centered in the proper position before God of submission. What contaminates our prayers, you see, is unresolved anger in the heart of the individual. How important are personal relationships? What we do to one another and how we treat one another through our relationship to God. If there's anything that Jesus connects together in the simple teaching that He did while He's on this earth, it's that. That how we treat one another as an impact in how we are related to God and whether or not we are approved before God. Matthew chapter 5 is a passage we, I think we recognize teaches that. I say to you, whoever is angry with a brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now that's not difficult to understand. Sometimes we analyze, I think, those passages a little so, so much that we fail to see the more general meaning of what, Paul, of what Jesus is actually expressing to us here. And that is that if you can't resolve the anger in your own heart and you can't forgive your brother and you can't get along, then don't come to me for worship because it disqualifies it. He's telling young Timothy the prayers must be offered from pure motives. That if I come before God to pray for him, my motives must be pure. I can't ask God to intervene in my behalf in my anger. Or I can't ask God to take my side in a quarrel. And sometimes we do that. We pray, but we pray that, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. I wish you'd take care of those folks over there because I really don't like them. And they're really amiss. In the coming weeks, we'll be studying the Lord willing from Luke chapter 18 in our Wednesday Bible class. And in Luke chapter 18, there's this familiar parable Jesus teaches about the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple. And that particular parable has a lot to say about hypocrisy and about the different attitudes the Pharisee has in Jesus' day against others whom he disdained, looked down on. But it fascinates me that Jesus would put that story about hypocrisy in the context, the physical context of praying in the temple. Can you tell what's in a person's heart by listening to their prayers? Could Jesus just tell us what these men say in the temple and we get an understanding of what lies within their hearts? That's what takes place here. Two men come to the temple to pray. One prays a certain way, one prays the other, another way. It says here that the Pharisee came and prayed within himself saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But then the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now Jesus' application of that is to ask the question, which person went down to his house justified? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, that's exactly what that parable is about. Humility and self-exaltation. And the contrast between the two. But what I like to notice about this prayer in the context of what we're talking about here is not only that Jesus set this lesson in the context of praying, but the text tells us also why Jesus found it necessary to say this, these words and tell this story. Why did he tell the story? 
It says, He said this to those who trusted in themselves and despised others. You see, that's a problem, isn't it? Hatred and anger in the heart of an individual. Can a fountain bring forth sweet water and bitter at the same time? Can a tree have good fruit and bad fruit on it at the same time? Or does what in the heart you see ultimately contaminate everything else? So that's what's displayed in some sense in the prayer of the Pharisee. He's proudful. But not only that, he despises other people. He looks on this fellow over here and says, Man, I'm so glad I'm not like him. I hate him. But he prays to God about his hatred. And Paul says, We need to lift up holy hands without anger and wrath. Putting everything in, the pla- in submission to the will of God. Recognizing that God gives me no prerogative from which to place my hatred of other individuals. My despising of other individuals in the context of praying to Him. And I believe what the Pharisee was doing in some sense is asking God to take his side. Take my side against the extortioners, the unjust, and the adulterers, and even this tax collector. I'm so glad I'm not like one of them. Whereas the publican prayed with humility and pure motives, God be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. Now those are different prayers, aren't they? Those are different prayers. And that's why Jesus tells this particular parable. To get us to see that what he's talking about in terms of prayer and the efficiency and the efficacy and the power of prayer, not in some physical position, not some physical place, but rather in what resides in our heart before we ever say the first word to God. Praying is central to our survival in a wicked world. It is our pipeline in this sinful place. The holiness of God, the only power that can overcome evil, resides with God alone. The first century church understood that right off. That when they faced the evils of men that would put them in prison and put them to death, that what they found themselves is not a desire to rise up in some social upheaval, not to find some place to find some weapons and go to fight. What they were driven to was to their knees. No doubt lifting up the holy hands unto God and say, God, we know the nations rage against us because God predicted it in the Old Testament. Give us the boldness to speak and the courage to stand in the face of the great evil. Take care of this. We put ourselves in your hands. And they prayed. And they prayed. We must also recognize that that's our weapon against the evil of our own day is the prayers that we offer before God. But if our hands are not holy then we have no hope. Our personal lives must reflect the godliness that we want to see in others. Not because we're angry at them or angry at the world, but because we submit ourselves to God in great humility, recognize that we too are sinners, and that we need the blood of Jesus Christ like they need the blood of Jesus Christ. God help us to be able to pray that way in our own lives. If you're not a child of God, what you cannot do is... Right in this passage, you cannot lift up holy hands. Because holiness comes from God and God alone. If you are not a child of God and the blood of Jesus Christ has not been applied to your soul, you still bear the guilt of your sins. Your hands are unholy, they are stained and polluted. With the things that you've done in rebellion against God and without the blood of Jesus Christ, you cannot be holy. But God designs for His children to be holy, for His church to be holy, without blame before Him in holiness and love. And so he sent his son to die on the cross and to resurrect from the dead. The blood of Jesus is available to you through faith and obedience to the gospel message. 
You can be cleansed from the sin of your own life, from the guilt of your own sin, and be holy before God because of what Jesus did on Calvary. Will you respond to the gospel message? He that believes and is baptized will be saved. Let's stand and sing.